Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us in Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and today I'm joined by Kate Price. Kate Price is the Managing Director of Sign Maker, a family-run business producing high-quality signs and memorials over in Devon. Kate, welcome. Great to have you on the programme today. Yeah, nice to be here. Likewise, nice to uh, to have you. So if we sort of dive straight into things, if I were to say the word leadership, uh, Kate, what does that actually mean to you? Yeah, I've never thought of myself as a leader, really. I run a business, but I take it that does make me a leader, doesn't it? But I never thought of myself in that way, but I guess that's what all business owners are. Absolutely, yes. And um, examples of good leadership within the business arena can often go under the radar, can't it? Because we often think of um, prominent leadership figures as those in politics, celebrities, sports personalities. Good leadership in the business environment, for you, does that often quite um, go unseen? Yeah, I guess you're right there because you're right. I think of leaders as politics, not people like me. And um, if, for example, based on your experience, you were to give any advice to somebody who was going to be in a leadership position in business starting tomorrow, what would you tell them, Kate? Right. I would say you've got to be enthusiastic about your business. You've got to be upbeat. Um, Because if you're not, your team certainly aren't going to be. Um, I think you should always look for the best in people use them where they're at their best. They might end up in a different role than what you originally put them on for. And certainly don't put them in areas where they're not suited because they'll never work well. Um, and I always find that most people want to do a good job. And everyone makes a few mistakes, the fountain. But encouragement always works far better than lots of criticism. I think in a nutshell, that's the way I look at running a business. I think that's absolutely right. And I think in a business context, especially, it's the job of a leader to make sure that there is that positive environment to really get the best out of other people, isn't it? Because fundamentally, it's not just a one man or one woman effort being the leader of a business. It's a team effort, isn't it? Absolutely team effort. You are relying on your team. You can't do everything yourself. And it makes it much more enjoyable if you've got an enthusiastic team coming up with ideas, taking on responsibility for your business themselves. That then leaves you in more of a position to come up with some more creative ideas to push it forward. And then with their their help, that's what happens. Absolutely. We talked about criticism um, a little bit earlier on, how sort of those leadership figures, those politicians that are in the limelight are very much in the line to be criticised a lot more than, say, figures who do go um, under the radar a little bit. And with that in mind, Kate, do you think that positive and effective leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? I suppose not. I've not thought about it, really. I'm just in business and just get on with it. Um, But positive leadership, yeah, it should, yeah, you're right. We need to push it forward. And positive is so much better than negative. One thing, it makes everybody happier. Everybody makes mistakes, I know, but it's far better to be positive. Um, Yeah, you're you're absolutely right there. I've not thought about it really, but you're right. Absolutely. And um, if we think about it from the perspective of uh, what you said earlier, of course, I mean, you never expected them um, to really be somebody in a leadership um, position, as it were. You consider yourself as just somebody who's at the head of a business. Um, do you think that the 
qualities needed to be a good leader in a business context as something that you can learn throughout life? Or is it something that some people are naturally born with, do you think? Bit of both. But I wasn't that at the beginning. I was a very quiet person. I didn't even like to answer a phone. So um, it, I never went to university. I was in a family business. But over time, you do learn it. Um, and I think maybe some of it's already in you. I don't think you need to be a really fiery sort of person. I think you've got to be quite calm and tolerant and understanding. Uh, there's no point going off on one just because somebody did something you didn't like the look of. Um, you need to sort of calm, go back in and, and discuss it with them and say, no, look, there are better ways of doing it. I think it's something that's learned over time. Um, I've been doing it rather a long time now. But I, I do think, I think maybe with university students, maybe it would help if they were put in situations where they understand what being a leader means. It's not just a job. So maybe something could be gained there. Um, but yeah, it is experience and time. So... <laughs> And this is where I am now. And in the position that we're in at the moment, it's quite, quite difficult. Absolutely. And you talk about that journey that you took in your career in the family business, and that's essentially how you grew into uh, being the position that you um, are in now. Um, with that um, in mind, um, are there any individuals in your life who've been maybe an inspiration on your leadership style, be it a family member or a figure of prominence? <laughs> um yeah, I've got a young a daughter who's uh, just finished university, actually, um, and uh, she is, or she wasn't going to, she worked uh, for a couple of companies, but we live in Devon, and we live in the countryside, and she enjoys Devon, and she is, has been watching the way I work, and in many ways, she's taking that on, so it's nice to be helpful to somebody else. Um, as who I looked at, I, I don't know really. I don't know. I just just it just slotted in. Nothing special. Just 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 made my way along, and this is where I am now. But it's um, it's good to help other people actually all along the way. Not just family, um, staff too. It's good to see them fall into their roles. I've got a um, my son-in-law now has got a scaffolding business worked for us for a while and there are things they all need to learn isn't it about business before going on their way so it's nice to be able to um, help them along really absolutely and that idea of being kind and essentially helping people develop in that way it's no more relevant than um, now with the current COVID-19 outbreak effective leadership is being tested to the limit at every level really not just in business but also at the political level as well um, we've seen some contrasting approaches, Kate, at the political level, of course. I mean, in the UK, of course, we originally took a less hands-on approach, having procedures in place, having money in place before more stringent measures have recently come in. Whereas you look at China and you look at Italy and they've perhaps taken quite strong measures a little bit earlier on than we have. Um, if we take that away from that context and away from politics for a short while, um, as a business leader, which approach do you generally prefer to take when you're dealing with difficulties in an everyday situation? Would you rather dive straight in, get on top of that situation as soon as possible? Or would you rather... I'm afraid I, yeah. yeah, I think you have to. You, 
I mean, now I'm looking at figures all the time. How can we get by this? How can we do that? It's no good just sitting there hoping it go away because it doesn't. And in all honesty, for peace of mind, you need to get it clear in your head all the different scenarios and what happens if this and then what happens if that. And you need to have it there in front of you. You need to know um, because otherwise you're just stressed out all the time. So um, I feel you've got to get straight in there and get it sorted. No putting your head in the sand as it were. Absolutely. So um, for you as a leader, you've got to be proactive. You've got to have that plan in place and at that plan rather than being reactive and just rolling with the punches as it were. Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you can't, you've got to be at the top, at the front. You've got to be looking at solutions right from word go. Um, not just sit back and see what happens. Absolutely. Now, before we wrap things up, uh, Kate, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months is going to hold for yourself, for memorable memorials, and what you hope to achieve in that time as a business as well? Um, yeah, we've got to survive. That's number one. And I need to look after my team of staff, because once we get back going, um, we all need to be... How I foresee it, it's quite difficult. I'm... I'm I'm guessing, and I don't know more than anybody else, but this is how I'm working my figures. I'm guessing three months are going to be really bad. Mm. Um, as a mail order business, we are expecting still to get some orders in, nothing like what we do normally. But again, as a family business, we live and work on site, so that uh, makes it easier for us. Um and so we will keep going. Uh, but I would imagine it's going to be a year at least before we're really back on our feet. Mm. Um, and I'm looking now to the bank and I'm looking to other people. And it's not that easy getting hold of them, I have to say, um, to put things in place like loan holidays and uh, change some of the, the things around. But we've got, we've got, there's got to be a plan that we've got to get by. Yes, absolutely. And let's hope that that is executed to perfection and yourselves and the economy are very much uh, back up and running within the uh, year. Um, Kate, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and really insightful having you on the uh, the programme today. And I think it would be fantastic as well to perhaps have you back on in a few months just to see how things have panned out in that respect. So, yeah, that would be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes, let's, and, hope, let's hope it's all good. Yes, absolutely. Or at least, at least copable anyway. <laughs> Yes, definitely. So um, we'll definitely look at that. Um, Thanks so much uh, for your time again, uh, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye. Many thanks. And we now hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? <laughs> um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dreskothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. 
Uh, but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then... Vaughan got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was Mm. captain of Middlesex, all my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later... I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business. Um to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets bef- a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But 
I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f I think it was in final day of the series and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible <laughs> like just white of a sheet gray he looked like aged about five years I went god Charlie you're not looking too good and he went yeah it's not surprising I haven't slept for eight weeks <laughs> and I went well join the club you Quite. know and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors and um yeah it, it just an extraordinary thing and uh, without doubt the the highlight was Number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we 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 won the Ashes, but also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London, and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble, that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point, Andrew, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that I got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating. You know, I felt like I'd really arrived well as a celebrity. Yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night, unfortunately. But I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know. You see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that you know that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Um, well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I got the role, it, it did feel like biggest sort of poison chalice of all time and that you know <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over so th there was that sort of realization this is going to be a tough thing to do um and you're gonna have to dig pretty deep but I think actually the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying okay if I'm going to do this job what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th th suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here. 
here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. Absolutely. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think <laughs> there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr- to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th- there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, p- perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. Uh, and so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th- th- yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and w- with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. Mm. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was 
sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... In fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think... I was comfortable leading. I was. I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground. Right. And so, you know, you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know you but when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become Avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt no. how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be... The World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so <laughs> was, was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands: husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you. To explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully, we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through. So after she died, 
in December uh, 2018, uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses. Number one, to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These Mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, Five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase and it's women young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be. Yeah. So the, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about. Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway. Yes. And then f- for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably, it was just, I, myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing red. Uh, wearing red. So it w- w- what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> they, anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. You know, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket. 
um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the hundred, not without its critics. Though I should, Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience. Exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask why do we need the hundred as well? Uh, well, so the hundred is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.